Oh, here we are. We're on air. Yeah, okay. We didn't get our usual bit, our city limits bit. Uh, but how anyway, that's Grace is here this morning, and um, Karina's laid low. And uh, Grace, welcome to City Limits. Come morning. On. How are you? You've moved on from breakfast. You're just uh, continuing. You might. What's the next show? You might be on the next show. Is my big We. I'm Kevin Healy, and uh, Karina, of course, is. Um, she's not well today. She rang yesterday, and she hoped to come in, but then she rang later and said, "Look, she wasn't going to make it." Uh, wish her well and hope she's feeling a lot better. And uh, we, um, which she won't know whether we want her back just just to get her back or whether we really care about her. But we'll we'll assume the latter. And uh, hope she recovers. Uh, City limits today. It's the second Wednesday of the month, and we're there for I think last week at the end I said it was housing, but I forgot that in between there's another week. And so we uh, today, in fact, we're going to be talking about energy issues, and we'll rave on about that for the first half hour or so. And we've got Helen Vandenberg, one of our regular irregulars or irregular regulars, on in the second half of the program to talk about issues to do with with water, with uh, with chemical waste, and I might even raise the issue because I think it's relevant to what's happening here as well. Uh, Thames Water in Britain, which is in real trouble, um, privatised the, the privatised water system in Britain is facing enormous difficulties and having to be bailed out. Uh, and they're talking about republicising it, so to speak, renationalising it, on the basis that, uh, but temporarily, until they can get back on their feet and give it back to the private sector to go and stuff it up again, obviously. That's how they do it, Grace, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. Um, but, oh, look, I haven't poured a cup of tea. You want a cup of tea, Grace? Uh, oh, yes, please. I talk you into to. it. Yes, okay. This is this, is is this the tradition for today's oh. limits in the morning? Ritualistic, this. Ritualistic. So, yes, there we are. We pour and mm. hope they can hear the pouring. Mm-hmm. There we are. And uh, I'll have to reach up and give you the cup over the top. So, <laughs> this is great, Ray. Awesome. Thank there you. you. Right Cheers. <laughs> Um, and uh, that's it. Uh, but on that point, I just raised, by the way, about we'll we'll come we we'll might raise the Thames Water thing with um, with Helen certainly. But there was a piece, um, there was a lift out last week in the Financial Review called Social Infrastructure, and it, the main theme was that because of problems that governments are facing with money post COVID and general problems with money overall, it's really important that we have public-private partnerships and that the public sector be heavily involved in providing public infrastructure. Now, I think over the years on this program, we've pointed out the disasters of all that, and the current um, crisis in Britain is a, is a fine example of that. Um, and in fact, uh, the, the British government is, um, is being asked to, to bail out Thames Water uh, get it back on its feet, then hand it back again. Uh, but, but um, campaign groups, clean water campaign groups in Britain, accuse the water companies of failing to invest in infrastructure, and public anger has been further stoked by the payment of dividends to investors and large salaries and bonuses to water industry executives. And the Labor Party over there, which isn't too left wing, but anyway, it said it shouldn't be left to the public to clean up the mess or pay the price for Tory failure. Uh, these were privatised back in the 90s by a Tory government and uh, there's disaster. And uh, and in fact, uh, Macquarie Group, the Australian group, is uh, owns one of the water companies and it's uh, saying it might have to pump a million dollars or a billion dollars, sorry, a billion dollars Australian into its uh, company 
uh, one of the, it's called Southern Water in their case, to uh, again bail it out of the problem. So it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite serious and uh, it's a perfect example of privatisation, Grace, of course, that these things happen. You, uh, you, hand, you hand over something to the private sector and surprise, surprise, it doesn't go as well as you thought it might. I think that's something we've always been hearing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think our electricity and gas companies are are prime examples of that. They were much more efficient when they were privately owned, when they were publicly owned, but uh, there you are. Um, Also, I I mentioned last week that Kerry Stokes, who's um, probably the now almost the, the number one capitalist in Western Australia. He owns all the media. He owns so much so much over there. He owns vast tracts of pastoral land. He owns mines. And he wants to test the new Aboriginal heritage laws because he, he wants to... Uh, he wants to tear up 208 hectares, hectares of land on one of his properties, which um, at some time might have actually belonged to the Indigenous people, but we won't go there. Uh, 200 hectares of bush to operate four centre, uh, four centre pivots drawing on groundwater to grow mainly roads grass to feed cattle. And he's afraid that the heritage laws might get in the way and uh, stop him from doing what he wants to do on... Uh, as if the Aboriginal people of that area have some right over the land or something. It's almost it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, but anyway, uh, we'll see what happens there. But the, the heritage laws were brought in shortly after the Duke and Gorge disaster when Rio Tinto stuffed everything up and uh, and wrecked, what, 40 or 50 or 50, whatever years it was, 44, I think they said at the time, 1,000 years of history. Um but they were only, they've only come into effect. They, they lay there, they were passed, but they were never, ever adopted. And they only came into effect last Saturday week, in fact. And so now that they've come into effect, poor Kerry feels bad. But to, to, <clears throat> to assuage his hurt a little bit, uh, the city of Perth, he owns, he owns a couple of buildings. He owns three buildings in a block in which there's a public road that goes through the middle. It's a public laneway, I think, more than a road, but it's a public, ac- public access spot. And um, he's applied to, to, to take it over, to buy it off the uh, city of Perth. And uh, the council there has agreed to this. It's gone for public consultation for a little while, but the, the council decision is that Kerry can buy this bit of private... Uh, Oh, this bit of public land, public roadway, which I find interesting as well. But I suppose in Western Australia, if you're Kerry Stokes, you can do what you like. Um, so that's, that would seem to be the way it goes. He also, um, in terms of privatisation, now we've talked about the disasters with Thames Water, but there are certain things, of course, that do make money, um, one of which is is ports, and the Victorian government unfortunately has privatised the port of Melbourne and privatised our ports. So they they avoid saying it's privatised, but it's actually on a ninety nine year lease. But I think that could effectively be called privatisation, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> I rather think, and uh, but Macquarie again, um, which is it's just said it's going to put a billion dollars to try and save the Southern Water mob in Britain, but it uh, it it bought the series terminals there in North America, in Seattle, um, and um, it bought them uh, a few years ago. In fact, it took full ownership in 2019, so it's only four years. It's now selling them and expects to make 15 times what it paid four years ago for these ports. So uh, 
It's not a bad return, on, uh, I would have thought, over that time. So occasionally privatisation can work very well to, uh, to do those things. Um, also, I'm going to move on to some energy stuff shortly, but also um, Uber and Facebook... Uh, this is interesting in relation to the to the Price Waterhouse Cooper uh, scandal that's been floating around. Of course, with them giving out confidential information. Why, of course, these companies get confidential information? It's a bit. You go to them and you go to companies. It's it's pretty interesting, isn't it? You you have a company whose main role is to advise its clients how to avoid tax. Essentially, that's what they do. They call it. We meet all our legal tax obligations which usually means they pay nothing uh, or, in fact, pay nothing but then get cons- get subsidies and handouts from the government, from other people's taxes who can't avoid them. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, PwC, I always think, I now think PwC actually stands for pricks with confidentiality, but that, they, they um, were advising all these people like Uber and Facebook, and you'll be pleased to know, it's revealed in the last week, that Uber and Facebook set up new company structures to sidestep the new multinational tax avoidance law that was the advice was the confidential thing they were letting out days before it came into effect in January 2016. So here you have two companies that we know over the years have been talked about the, the fact that they pay very little or no tax at all, Uber and Facebook. And here they were getting advice from PricewaterhouseCooper and setting up new structures to avoid this tax that was coming in. Interesting, they call it the multinational tax avoidance law because that's really what it is, I suppose, the, how to avoid tax. Um, so the name isn't too bad when you think about it. It's, it's mm-hmm. spot on, spot on, Grace, I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on all that, by the way? Well, I'm actually not too sure about how tax works here but because, um, yeah, I, I don't actually... Pay pay for any of this, <laughs> considering because I don't um yeah I'm not a citizen here actually um just an international student here but it's, it sounds like really interesting stuff man yeah yeah mm. you've been going back and forth lately a bit haven't you I hear on the brekkie show you say you you've been to various places and wandered back again and all that. Oh, I mean, to be honest, I've just been staying at a brekkie because I was just trying to get used to it. But yes, I have. But then now I'm here also in City Limits for the first time. So, and it, this, is, this is really new to me, um, <laughs> talk, talking about tax and cities and stuff. So that's very interesting. <laughs> well, there you are. <laughs> but uh, well, often the brekkie show that goes to those sort of issues as well. Uh, so it's, it's pretty good, yeah. Mm. Uh, and this week, the state government has now, or it hasn't announced, but it was leaked um, via a video uh, that um, the state government plans to slash jobs in the health system. And I would have thought this is, you know, this is an absolute disaster. I mean, I, I can't see how the health system can afford to lose any more people mm. than we've got now. It's, it's um, you know, it's struggling at time. I mean, COVID certainly was an exception in that sense, and the people did a magnificent job. Uh, my experience with the health system in recent years has been nothing but positive, and I think they do a, a spectacular job. But I don't think we can afford to be slashing it and cutting it. Yeah. Um, and the, the current system, um, let's look at the history. I've done this before on this program, but let's look at the history. The, the original system that was brought in for universal health care was called Medicare. Uh, no, sorry, mm-hmm. Medibank. Medibank. Mm-hmm. That was back in the Whitlam government period. And 
when the Fraser government came in after that, they abolished Medibank. We had a group called the Medibank Action Coalition and we had protests and tried to stop it, but it was they got rid of Medibank. And then when the Hawke government came in, Bill Hayden as minister brought in uh, Medicare, which we've now got. But for both of them, the, the simple principle was it was a 2% levy on wages, on, on people's income, and uh, that would pay for universal free health care. Now, that isn't working. Uh, we've now seen, under the Howard government, of course, massive subsidies, massive parts of the private health system, private health funding, going to the health the health funds, the private health insurance funds, and they just shouldn't even have to exist. If you've got a free system, why do you need to insure for health? Yeah. Uh, but, of course, we haven't quite got a free system. It's under strain. But my argument is that if we are under strain and we can't afford universal free health and we have to keep putting levies on things and charging some people, then let's increase the levy. Let's just make the levy 4% or whatever to a level where we can have universal free health for everybody. And uh, that would seem to be a simple solution rather than saying, well, we're where we're at and we have to cut and slash jobs. And, of course, a lot of it, a lot of the slashing in Victoria is because what does appear to be getting themselves into all sorts of debt over all sorts of things that have nothing to do with health particularly, but yeah. there you are. Yeah, and not to mention that a lot of the workers as well, they're overpaid and over time. They're overworked and exhausted from all mm. this, and then now mm. you're treating them by cutting off their job. That's not that's not fair, is yeah. it? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Thank you for uh, getting us through COVID. Here we go. Here's your uh, here's your here's your, your sleep. Go out the door. <sighs> yeah, that's damn damn good point. The uh, the, the other one um, this week, Crown Casino, which of course was taken over by another mob called Blackwood or something, whatever they call themselves. Um, they got fined. They've had a few fines, but they've had a big fine. They agreed to it. They they finally agreed to a $450 million fine to get rid of a number of charges. And it's gone It's gone before the federal court, Michael Lee, the judge, uh, to have it approved. But he's questioning a number of things. And Crown's argument is that it has to pay it in instalments over two or three years, pay two fifty now and some more later and then another batch later. Uh, but in fact, uh, interest-free for that time. And Lee's, Lee's saying, and in fact, um, the math, someone's done the maths and shows that if, if, if that happened, they would in fact be better off by several million dollars because of the interest-free bit over that period, and they could in fact be investing the money themselves and getting interest on it, all that while it's going on. Mm. But they're crying poor and saying, well, the whole deal will have to collapse if we have to pay the fine in one lump sum because we simply can't afford to pay it. And they've got this private mint, and I think casinos are a private mint, mm. um, but they're they're crying poor and saying, look, we've agreed to this fine, but we can only only agree and um, and pay it if we can pay it in instalments and uh, and in fact in the long term. And the judge pointed out in the in, in, in his, and he's gone away to think about it that in fact they would in fact be better off and make money out of it. Um, they wouldn't. They'd still lose overall, but they they certainly wouldn't. It wouldn't be a full four fifty million by the time they got returns on the other money that they uh, they wouldn't be paying up front. So um, it's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've got, uh, what else? I, I thought the other thing this week, and it, it, um, we'll mention it in passing, but it's absolutely outrageous, I think, 
this attempt, like the whole thing is outrageous, what's happening with Ukraine uh, anyway, but uh, the fact that the US is sending cluster bombs uh, is just absolutely outrageous. Why are you doing that? Well, they say that they need them to defend themselves and Russia's using cluster bombs, so we'll use them, whereas they're banned. You know, hundreds of countries, oh, not hundreds, I think 120 or something, countries have signed a, an international ban on them, including Australia, for that matter. Australia occasionally signs something the US doesn't, but that's, that's rare. Uh, whereas the US, of course, as usual, doesn't sign any of these things. Mm. And it's saying, well, it's, it will help Ukraine to uh, counter. But, I mean, it's, it's saying, well, if Russia uses something terrible, we'll use something terrible because cluster bombs hang around for eons. Are you trying to start a and, war? Is that yeah, and, they, and can blow up. I mean, they, they, their problem is they, they, spray, they spray all these little ball-sized piece, explosives and it's like walking on landmines and things, you know, after wars and when you're trying to clean them up. Uh, and they're very difficult to clean up. So, mm. um, you know, people are going to be, uh, people are going to, for a long, long time, decades, people will find people finding them and, and, and causing injury and, and death and because of these things. So, you know, it's just the usual irresponsibility and, and total immorality of the US flogging. And in fact, there's been recent articles pointing out the massive profits that the merchants of death have been making out of the Ukraine war. I mean, they're, they're the big winners um, yeah. flogging all this, all this material. Uh, so, yeah, and just to pack up this six and then I'll move on to a little bit about energy, um, the, there's been a report that, uh, and this will be hard to believe, isn't it, department, this one, um, international students are being exploited left, right and centre, so to speak, um, well, right, right and right, I would have thought, um, being paid as little as $10 an hour and, and ripped off incredibly. I mean, it's the old story, though, and it's just the ongoing story, really, in that case, that the, the international students are... Uh, Always, and that's why, uh, of course, employers like to employ them because they can exploit them to the Hilton. Um, I don't know if you had experience with this, Grace, but it, uh, you know, it's a it's um, an ongoing problem. Yes, it definitely is. Um, I'm grateful that I'm not paid ten dollars per hour, but um, I, I I do know that there are people out there that have been paid that way, so that's not that's not acceptable, is it? And yeah, it's just I guess we don't have a choice, and for some a lot of us because we're so desperate for just even getting paid, <laughs> and for and like when it comes to like internships and things that help us with opportunities and growth of our careers. So that's where that's where we, we really are desperate for the opportunities, even if the pay is not there. But yeah, that's a sad thing, and I think that really needs to be solved. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's, uh, you know, it's nothing new. It's the old story, but unfortunately it, uh, it continues to happen. Mm. Uh, on some energy issues, I noticed this week, and it's great news, Australia has joined the climate uh, club um, mm. and the well, this is this is great news because they say the climate club is going to talk about uh, climate change. That's good. I mean, talk about it. That's wonderful. Um, Should be talking about that. Going to do anything about it? Uh, probably not. But they're going to talk about it, um, which is just absolutely wonderful. And uh, just to to um, go along with that, uh, we currently have. Um, the the industry itself saying there's absolutely no way we can meet our 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 current targets for reduction 
at the pace we're going uh, and that that there's problems we're going to be many hundreds of kilometres short in terms of building transmission lines because one of the problems with renewable energy is they're not the the current transmission lines go from the coal mine to um, you know through across the state to our homes mm. uh, but they don't go from where a lot of the renewable energy is going to be built and so there's been delays in in the investment there because of that problem of getting the transmission lines and you're getting complaints around the country with people who don't want them going through their property or they want massive amounts of money to put it through their property. Uh, so it's all, it's all falling way behind. But then the other side of that is that the industry itself then says, um, well, because that's slowed down and not going well, and part of it's due to them in the first place, uh, therefore we have to continue to get more coal and more gas and more oil. And the government this week's brought in a new gas rule where, you know, again, there's more gas. And I, I find it hard to believe that you can say you're aiming for zero emissions, and that's, we'll talk about that in a minute, but you're aiming to address climate change at the same time as you continue to approve new gas projects and new oil projects and new coal projects, and not so many new coal ones these days, but certainly lots of gas ones. Mm. Um, and and so the industry is saying, well, we have to keep doing this because of the problems created. So it, it, it becomes a vicious circle uh, in which they, uh, they benefit from um, their own activities in many ways. So it's just, uh, I just find it extraordinary. Uh, and in fact, they argued this week that the targets for 2030 are near impossible to reach and uh, I think they've got the figure here, 1,200 kilometres. The transmission rollout is already 1,200 kilometres behind schedule. So all that um, means we've really got to pull our finger out and move so much faster and not just talk about it, um, which is what, unfortunately, they do. And quite recently, there was a climate, well, the, pre the, the next COP, which is going to be uh, held, chaired by a, uh, an oil executive, um, which of course is is really great. Um, the the uh, the the next one's going to be held in what's El Jaber? Where's he come from? He comes from uh, somewhere, doesn't he? <laughs> Obviously, comes from somewhere. I'll find it in a minute. But one of those Middle Eastern oil company oil countries. Uh, that's what uh, it's Abu Dhabi, actually. I think. Um, and he's going to be chairing the next one. But they recently had a pre-copped conference for nine days over in over in um, in Bonn, the Bonn Climate Change Conference, and the incredibly, like I mentioned, I'm, I was being cynical about the fact that the the Climate Club is going to talk about it. They spent eight days of the nine discussing the agenda before they even agreed on an agenda. They didn't even talk about the major issues. And I think it's important, um, because of the fact that we're saying we're not going to reach our targets, uh, to hear what the response to that was from um, Guterres, Antonio Guterres, the UN, UN Secretary General. And after that, he came out and said, I see a lack of ambition, a lack of trust, a lack of support, a lack of cooperation and an abundance of problems around clarity and credibility 
and he said um, countries are far off track in meeting climate promises and commitments. The climate agenda is being undermined. At a time when we should be accelerating action, there is backtracking. At a time when we should be filling gaps, those gaps are growing. Uh, and as I say, they spent all that time just to reach an agenda and got nowhere. And many of the most important things that ought to be on the agenda um, for the COPT conference when it finally is held uh, simply weren't there, um, weren't on the agenda. So once again, it's just all talk and as these COP things are and, uh, and no action, unfortunately. Uh, that'll do. Look, the only thing I want to mention, I did mention zero emissions. I think it's important to keep pointing out when they say zero emissions, they mean you counter them um, by having offsets. Mm. So you continue to use your gas and use your coal and use your fossils and pollute uh, and then offset it somewhere with a tree in Indonesia or something. Um, and it's absolute crap. I mean, we need, we need, we don't need we don't need zero emissions in that sense. We need zero emissions absolutely and no no pollution from the fossils. Um, but um, it isn't looking well, unfortunately, at the moment. Look, we're going to go to Helen Vandenberg in a moment and talk about things like water and other cheery-up things like <laughs> chemical fires and pollution. Oh, it was a great show. Um, but before we get there, we're going to, because it's Helena, because she talks so much about water all the time, we're going to, we've resurrected the old Frankie Lane hit from many, many years ago called Cool Water, and here it is. Get to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Okay, regular on City Limits, uh, Helen Vandenberg on the line. Frankie, we have, what happened to Cool Water? We were given Grace one for Gibb. It's her first day. Uh, she's never used the CD machine in this station, in this studio before, and somehow it it spun around, but it didn't come to air. So you missed out on hearing Cool Water. We just thought it was a, would have been a nice um, segue into. Helen Vandenberg, Helen, just before we go to you, I, what Apropos was saying before the break, uh, Tania Constable, who is the uh, Chief Executive of the Minerals Council, had a so-called think piece with the think, I think, very questionable, in the paper this week, uh, saying mining is Australia's once-in-a-generation net-zero opportunity. Uh, <laughs> And um, she opens up by, she's always pushing for more gas, and she opens up by saying that her opening par and her closing par tell us that the closing par is an internationally competitive mining sector is fundamental to Australia, fully capturing the economic benefits flowing from the transformation of economies to net zero emissions. But in between, it's all about the great economic benefits to presumably the great mining companies and how we wouldn't have police or hospitals or anything else or health system without the great mining industry, Helen. Well, I picked myself up from the floor. Um, they have always maintained... Main. Hello, you're... 
Hi, Helen. Sorry about that. Could you just make sure you're you're close to your phone? Yeah. yeah. Uh, for yeah. the public to clean. That's up. better. That's better. Yep. Hello. Can Hello. You hear me oh, you're yep. better now. Helen, yeah. You've, yep. been, you've been breaking up, Helen. We hardly heard a word of what you were saying. I'm sorry. Oh, weren't you lucky? Um, <laughs> no, no, yep. no. Well, as I was saying, water is going to be one of the massive um, crises that comes as a consequence of climate change. Um, and there'll be a global shortage of water, as well as in the local area here, um, the sustainable water strategy, which we uh, the government brought out last year, clearly indicates that we've lost a quarter, 25% of our water. And we stand to lose another 20 to 40% of our fresh water supply. But we have an increasing demand. So that's the crisis in itself. Now, during the last millennium drought, which was really a climate change event, they had to rush in a desal plant. Now they've realised that regional towns... Now, to the west of Melbourne is drier than the east, right? So... And this is where urban growth is really hammering down around Werribee and around Sunbury in the northwest. And you're getting regional developments in Romsey. Now, uh, and Ballarat and Geelong are also developing. So you've got less water in the rivers, and yet we already know that the rivers are already 367 gigalitres, so that's 367 billion litres short of the water they need to be healthy now. So we have unhealthy rivers right across the southern part of the state. Uh, consequently, your aqua aquatic species are disappearing from the population sizes are shrinking, and Melbourne Water has predicted that even though the river health strategy says we want to keep under climate change, we're going to fight to keep the existing aquatic species like platypus, fish, um, plus our frogs, plus the, the bugs that make up the food web in the rivers. We're going to try very hard to maintain populations of those so they will be smaller. They are now saying five years into the river health strategy, we won't keep the platypus in the Werribee and the Maribyrnong and it'll only be in the upper parts of the Yarra. Now, that's pretty horrendous. And you can't say it's just only a consequence of climate change because if these rivers had been better managed, the populations of these species would have been big enough so that under climate change they would have reduced in population size. They would not be becoming extinct in the Werribee and Maribyrnong and the Moorabal rivers, right? So... There's a real need to put river water back into the rivers. And the only way you can do that is if you stop taking an excessive amount of water out. Now, under the Water Act, the government says the water corporations have an entitlement, bulk water entitlement to supply water for human needs and agriculture and mines get a pretty good access somehow or other as well to water without... <clears throat> they don't seem to have to go through the same process. So in the last sustainable water strategy last year, it's clearly said that the retail companies like City West Water, Yarra Valley Water, have to reduce their take from the rivers and they have to come up with a plan on how they're going to do it. 
doing that at the same time as having increasing demand. So the system's going to crack somewhere. Mm. They're saying that because we now have... Now, sewerage, as you know, gets collected. Now, it gets treated and released either into the sea, if it's at Werribee or Anglesey or uh, other parts of the state, and it gets released into the local rivers for towns like Riddles Creek, Romsey, Lansfield, Sunbury, Gisborne. That all goes into the rivers. Now, they're saying, well, there's a vast amount of water there. We could reuse that, which is which happens in many countries. The only difficulty we have with that is that humans consume drugs for health reasons. They also have illicit drugs. And that is in the sewerage. And as yet, we do not know how to get rid of, or as yet, we do not eliminate those chemicals from the wastewater stream. So it's treated water, but those things are still there, you're saying? That's right. And there's yeah. emerging, well, they're calling them emerging contaminants. Now, the EPA did a study of 120 um, places around Victoria, and they found that there, uh, they found what was inevitable that the treated sewage has these contaminants in it and they've acknowledged that. So that's good, right? However, we want the report that gives us the details of what each specific um, waste treatment plant has and the location of it. And instead, we've got a two-page summary listing all these terrible chemicals that are still in the wastewater, but they wouldn't give us the location. So there's a bit of an argument about that. So we know the problems, right? And the only way we can resolve these problems if we work collaboratively together and openly and we have this, you know, and we're willing to say, yeah, we get the situation from, from the water groups and environment groups. We understand the crisis. We want to help. We don't just want to be sitting here being the critics of the government. We want to offer, we want to be part of helping the community get educated on the issue so that they can understand the issue and realise there are solutions that's going to entail sacrifice and cost. And the cost is legitimate. Now, we all know that because of, like, the things you were talking about in the early part of the program, this whole idea that everything in government has to run at a profit, you know, so we had to sell it off so that other people could make profits. The point is people are basically cooperative, right? They want to cooperate. They want to get along. And we just need to deal with the situation. Now, it's a good thing that the government, the state government is saying to the water corps, well, work out how you're going to save water. And we've said to them, you've got to clean up the water. You've got to improve that water because at the moment that water is also... Um, when it's put back into the rivers downstream, it's used to irrigate crops. And we're saying that's dangerous because that could have long-term health impacts. It could have... Uh, it could be... It's going to affect soil health and it's going to get taken up by the plants. So you can't just um, say it's automatically fit for irrigation either. Now, down at Werribee... There's a lot of recycled water available, has been available for a long time, and the farmers won't take it because it's too salty. It's also too expensive for them. But 
it's too salty. You cannot put salty water on your land without wrecking it. Mm. And we cannot get traction on that issue. So it's a bit distressing for us. We have a group of people, the Concerned Waterways Alliance, and we represent rivers from the Snowy to the Barwon. And we are saying we want to help with water literacy. Now, water literacy is really important. I mean, how many people think it's safe to build houses on flat land near rivers and creeks? Far too many. How many planners think that? Far too many. Does the Victorian Planning Authority, who is the real culprit here, uh, care about it? I don't think so. Anyhow, we have... So you've got people who don't understand that floods are inevitable. It's just a matter of when are they going to come. You've got... uh, water corps who've got the job of trying to save water without having sufficient finances to invest in the infrastructure that they're going to need. You've got an EPA that hasn't kept up with all the chemicals that are um, in the water. For instance, on the PFAS issue, I think our EPA recognises about 120 forms of the forever chemical PFAS. And I think in Europe or America, there's 320 forms. Now, so we have to keep our scientists up to date. We have to get our regulations right. And if we cannot get this recycled, we, we ought to be able to work at improving that recycled water so it becomes usable. And if we can't, then the reality is you're going to need another desal plant to the west of Melbourne, and that would be needed for water for Ballarat, Geelong and the western suburbs of Melbourne. So they're the options on the table. Do we have a really strong public discussion happening about that at the moment? No, we don't. And the pace of change that's indicated in the sustainable water strategy is, oh, well, we've got five years to work out how to short, how we can reduce our water. We, it looks to me like we're going to hit another dry period, ill-prepared, and then we'll get rushed decisions. And when decisions are rushed, they're usually not done consultatively and they become more expensive. And all we're asking the government to do is sit down and plan and start educating the community about what the crisis is, what are the solutions and how we're going to handle it because we're not going to have an option. If there's less water... I mean, to the west of Melbourne, we used to get up to 500 mil. We've lost a quarter of that, so we're down to 350. We're going to lose another 20 to 40 percent. If we lose another 40 percent, we're down to something like just under 200 mils a year. Now, imagine what that's going to do to people's gardens. There's plenty of use for recycled water. In the meantime, um, we have got some changes to rules about protecting rivers and creeks. The government brought that in in December, that every riverine area now has to be considered to uh, in a way that prevents um, inappropriate development close to creeks and rivers. So that's a good thing that they've done. They haven't extended that protection to the escarpments, which is also needed. And they brought in specific protections for the Mooney Ponds Creek, uh, part of the Maribyrnong, and uh, the Werribee, and they're looking at doing the same for Corroy Creek, Skeleton Creek, 
uh, Steel Creek and a few other creeks to the east of Melbourne, as well as for the upper part of the Jackson's Creek and uh, they didn't mention Deep Creek. So it's, it's a government that's got a bureaucracy that has all the information they need and we just need them to, to um, stand up and be counted on this. I mean, they have... To, and another good thing that's in the Sustainable Water Strategy is they've recognised that the um, regional areas don't have access to desal water, so they're, they're doing a really good thing in making sure the water grid is connected so we can all share water with one another, right? And that's a sensible thing to do because... If we have that shared water grid, then we can stop plundering the groundwater up in Lansfield for um, potable water and let that groundwater be left there because that's what feeds the Deep Creek in particular. And without groundwater, it's just going to dry up completely. So we need that to happen. So that, in a way, will prepare us if we have to do another desal plant later on. But nobody wants to talk about a desal plant because of either it's expensive or because people near the coast are not going to like it. Nobody likes the impact of climate change. And at the moment, we, we, we could very well become in a situation where it's a choice between let all your southern rivers collapse or have a desal plant. So... If you can reduce your take from the rivers, you've got a hope of keeping them. Otherwise, they're not going to be anything but a drain. So that's the situation we're facing. Cheerful thought, isn't it? It's pretty <laughs> cheerful. With the, the, the old story, the government's come up with what you're saying, you know, at face value looks a reasonably good policy, but it's a question then of putting it into practice, isn't it? Yes, and that comes back to funding, which comes back to this point of corporatising water corporations and running them like businesses. Because even the Kennett government found out that Victorians, 96% of Victorians, were opposed to privatising water, which is why they only took the gas and fuel and electricity, right? But then they corporatised it. So you have somebody looking after the dams and the pipes that deliver the water. Then the retailer has to pay to get the water. It's really part of the same company. Has to get the water from them. And then they sell it to the customers. Right Then you've got another water corporation called Southern Rural Water and they're in charge of uh, who can extract water and who can have a dam uh, and who can take water out of rivers and creeks. And then we've got the colonial heritage of I own some private land out in a region, therefore, and I abut a creek, therefore I have an automatic right to take water from that creek, and which they do. And, they, and there are rules that say you can only fill your dams during the winter period so that you've got water for the summer and you're not allowed to take it. But there has been no enforcement. Fortunately, the Andrews government has now got a zero tolerance of water theft and overtake, and they are looking to get um, greater enforcement. Now, Melbourne Water is now a catchment management authority as well, so they have powers to act on this as well. So they're putting in place good things. It's just not going at the speed that we need it to go at. Mm. And if we don't go faster, we will have the collapse we should be trying to avoid. On a related issue, the the floods last year, um, the on the Meribadong, which caused massive problems, of course. Yeah. Um, I noticed the government's now saying they'll bring 
um, the Weather Bureau into the issue to give earlier warnings. And the, you know, one of the big criticisms was the incredibly late warnings people got uh, during that flood last year. Well, Kevin, I am a little confused about how emergencies are managed in water and in toxic fires. We have really good emergency management in bushfires, right? And flood management in regional areas tends to be better than in the city because people know their area, see the warning signs, etc., and they're more connected. However, in the city, a lot of people are living on a floodplain and don't know it. Now, I looked at the river gauges for the Maribyrnong at 20 to 5 on Thursday the 13th, the day before the flood. 13th of October, mm. it had hit the major flood warning levels in Deep Creek at that time, right? And Jackson's Creek was running hard and fast too. And you have tidal impacts as well. So that when the tide comes in, it always makes the Maribyrnong flood worse. So you had all of that happening at once. My understanding is that Melbourne Water was not in charge. Melbourne Water had all of that data. Whether or not it got relayed to the Bureau... Now, Melbourne Water put out the proper warning at the beginning of the week that it was a flood. That got rescinded because the Bureau said, oh, there's not going to be any... The rain forecast is different. I'm not sure that the Bureau is in the position to understand how every little waterway works, and particularly to the west of Melbourne, where we're a bit different. So clearly we need a better warning system. Um, And clearly the Victorian Planning Authority has to change its attitude on planning. I am really cross with them because they allow developers to rush every bit of water off their development into the nearest creek and river. And this is water that in the west of Melbourne, that was our recharge to groundwater. And every creek to the west and northwest of Melbourne depends upon groundwater seeping into it to keep it flowing through all seasons, not just in summer, but throughout the year. We have dry autumns. I mean... The little creek behind my house never dried up in any drought because it was fed by groundwater. During the last millennium drought, I saw a reach of my creek disappear because the groundwater was flowing under the creek. Now, if the water water table drops significantly to the west of Melbourne, that will be the fate of many creeks. However, that's a bit disguised in the urban areas because the water is rushed off our roofs, off our roads, it's straight down to the creek, so we get flashy floods, right? So, Mm. you know, we were lucky that we hadn't had a really heavy downfall in the lower part of the Maribyrnong as well because if we had, that flood would have been worse. Now, the planning authority seems to me to be... Um, the tool for the developers to get mostly what they want. And if you look at RMIT's Urban Research Centre and what's the impact of planning now, you can see there are lots of communities that are disadvantaged that have very little blue-green infrastructure where they can go and walk 
and then get uh, respite from the stresses of urban living, uh, walk for their health. Very few areas available to the community. So our current planning system actively supports entrenched disadvantage inequity. So if the plan, the biggest planning authority in this state is the Victorian Planning Authority, and unless it stands up and realises it is behaving unjustly and needs to change, and it continues to allow development to run right as it does now, we're just going to have overheated suburbs with little amenity, and that will cause social dislocation. And they don't want to hear this message at all. I raised that issue with a representative theirs at a meeting once in a rather blunt fashion. And the only response was a complaint to the facilitator about the way I spoke to them. <laughs> there was no, no recognition of the issue at all. Yeah, and of course the report into those floods is going to come down, um, I think, in a another month or two, or in November they're saying they're going to release it. I mean, that could be interesting, couldn't it? Because it uh, well, I don't know that the Melbourne Water Flood Review is in a good position to um, answer any proper questions because the conditions were so restrained. That was that was a bit of a, a joke. What, uh, what I'm hoping is the parliamentary inquiry has been more rigorous. I mean, the reality is we've got people living in areas where... Given the climate change is going to give us more intense events. Now, my little creek is half a metre wide. I've seen it 200 metres wide in a one in 200 year event. Fortunately, there's a floodplain behind my place, so which I don't live on, and I watch it with great interest. And it spread out and then it shrunk back. And it was a flash one and it only lasted about 40 minutes, right, at that width, and then it shrank back pretty quickly. But we will get events like that in our urban areas and with more roofs, with more water being rushed down into them, then we are going to have calamity upon calamity. So we have to think about this rationally and we have to come up with solution responses. I mean, the solution, even if we get to zero emissions <laughs> by 2035, which I seriously doubt... Even if we to do that, even if we get to zero, it's going to take a long time for the climate to readjust. So these problems are there and will be lasting for a long time. And it is our obligation to future generations to face the facts and start dealing with it. And if it's going to cost us more, we need to shut up about paying taxes and pay the taxes that are required. And that includes all companies that avoid them and mining companies. Yeah, but Helen, just to finish up, we've got only got a couple of minutes left, but I noticed recently um, the company that created that dreadful explosion and fire at Campbellfield in 2019 got, oh. re got recently got and caused, of course, the damaged waterways as well, or massive stocks, overstocking of, of dreadful chemicals. Um, they got fined $3 million, but they've gone into liquidation and um, disappeared. And so even the judge admitted, even though he fined them, that never, the government would never see the money. And I noticed, though, the actual cost of cleaning up to the government was $10 million. So we fined them three, it costs us 10, and we're not even going to get the three. That's right. 
And, I mean, it's not like people haven't been crying out in the West for stronger penalties for pollution crimes. I mean, I cannot understand why this is regarded as a civil crime and not a criminal crime. Mm. I think pollution is criminal and it ought to be treated in the same rigorous way that criminality is dealt with. I mean, look at kids who make mistakes get put into jail. People who can't afford to pay fines get put into jail. That's outrageous, right? And yet people who do deliberately do real harm to the air that we breathe and the water, I mean, if all water becomes comes back into the water cycle at some stage, they're allowed to be treated like, oh, well, that's just sort of a little mistake. It's, it's all wrong. Yep. And we need yep. law reform, which is why it's very good that we have Environmental Justice Australia out there challenging the uh, weak laws and the poor interpretation of laws that exist and calling for law reform. Yeah, we're going to have to wind up there, unfortunately, Helen, but we've cheered people up no end again this morning. Well, <laughs> and, well it's a good thing there's plenty of good music around to listen to to cheer you up as well as if you go outside and enjoy the sunshine and look at the plants right. and listen to the birds, you will cheer up and you'll realise we're just little specks in this wonderful universe and we need to be responsible with it, but we should enjoy it as well. Well, we tried to cheer them up with Frankie Lane's cool water, but we couldn't get this machine to work properly. But anyway, we'll sort that out at some stage. But uh, look, thanks for your time. We'll doubtless talk to you again shortly, Helen. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks, okay. Kevin. Bye, Grace, right and I hope the hearing gets better quickly. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Bye. for um, Grace, thanks very much. Um, Thank you. That was uh, Helen Vandenberg, of course, who's a great activist in that part of the world, and I think people can tell from the interviews. But Grace, thanks for stepping in and doing the job for us, and um, you are forgiven. You get one forgive, <laughs> only get the one forgive, but you're forgiven for the cool water bit, okay? Yeah, um, I think I actually finally figured out um, <laughs> how to play the song. If so, if so, if you like it on now, you can actually try it if you want. <laughs> okay, and uh, next week we're going to be looking at housing issues, and uh, meanwhile, in the next couple of minutes, it's going to be Joe Toscano and uh, Anarchist World this week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.